Let me just read to you four verses, or five actually, 16 through 20. This is talking about Christ, and it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself, might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Let me put it into context today's message. We are on a ten-year journey towards spiritual maturity. Our intent is to build people who look on the heart and not as the world sees. Our intent is to build people who can read the Spirit as they read the Word. That's a long distance to go. However, we're taking it a year at a time. And this year, our purpose is to find our purpose. That is, to find that toward which we are building. If you want to know the purpose for your life, you must know how you will know when you find it, what characteristics it has. There are a couple of ways to build a puzzle. I'm not very good at puzzles, but we've done a couple of them at our house with boys and rainy afternoons. I know there are two ways, and one of them is terribly frustrating, and the other one is only mildly frustrating. The one that is terribly frustrating is to take the top of the box and hide it. And just look at the edges of the pieces and the little bit of color that you have and see if you can find one that fits together with it. That, in a very short period of time, will drive you crazy. No, the better way is to look at what you're trying to build and then to see what pieces match that picture. And so, therefore, when we start talking about the purpose of life, it is a very good place to begin to talk about the overall purpose of God, life, the big picture God has for us all, because we're just a little corner of the puzzle. We've got to be able to fit ourselves together to examine, you know, what gifts we have and who God's put us with and what body we're in and all that kind of stuff. But what we're trying to fit in is not our little corner, but the big picture. And that's what I want to talk about today. Let me say this to you, that the purpose that God has for this world is to build a people for himself. I want you to write that down somewhere, if not on a piece of paper, at least in your brain or in your heart. This will not be the last time you hear me say this. The big picture is this, that God has created a world in which he intends to build a people, not individuals, to build a people for himself. That is the big picture, very simply put. Now, God has a method by which he does that. And this method is woven through history. And it is recorded by Scripture. Now, there's two philosophies of history from which you can interpret Scripture. And there are probably more than this, but there are two main ones. One is called dispensationalism and one is called covenant theology. Dispensationalism basically says that God 
developed a people and people kept failing within a system. And so God would respond to that failure with another system. There was an age of innocence and there was an age of conscience. There was an age of human government there was an, and so on and so forth. Okay? Basically what that system says, and, and the system's not all wrong. I mean, you can see those things in Scripture, you know. Basically, though, what that system says is that God was responding to the acts of people. And that's how he built his world. Covenant theology, on the other hand, says, no, God doesn't respond to the acts of people. God initiates his plan. God initiates covenants with people. And so, therefore, he begins from the very beginning to build something that will be everlastingly valuable. None of it is outdated. None of it is thrown away. It is everlastingly valuable. There are two ways you can raise kids. Most of us do it based on a dispensationalist stance, waiting for this age to pass, waiting for this stage to go away. Most of us do it reacting to what the kids have done, thinking, I've got to have a better system here. The other way you can do it, and it is much more effective, is to say, what kind of person am I trying to build here? And to initiate into that kid's life things that will build that kind of person. The first system, the leadership comes from the kid. The second system, the leadership comes from you and the Lord. If you're a Christian, you understand the difference? Okay. Now, I want to explain to you today what the basic covenants... And by the way, a covenant is a bond in blood. It is is a way for two parties to be committed to one another. And I want to to trace through history the basic covenants, or, or several of the basic covenants, that God has initiated with man building this people for himself. This thread of redemption where he comes and he says, I'm going to redeem you out of your sin and I'm going to call you back to myself. These are the elements of that covenant. Now, by the way, you will notice that these very same elements are necessary for you to build intimacy, not only with God, but with each other. These are the same elements that are necessary to build into personal relationships. And so God has been very consistent in the way he's woven the fabric of the universe together. Not only with a civilization over thousands of years, but also in the life of an individual over a very few years. It's the same pattern. Now, work with me. I hope you brought I hope you got tabs on your Bible because we're going to do some flipping this morning. Turn to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. As you're turning, let me describe the scene for you. Adam and Eve have just fallen. They've done exactly what God told them not to do. They are hiding in the garden. God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day saying, Adam, where are you? By the way, I'm going to be preaching on that next week. Do not miss that sermon. He comes upon them. He said, what have you done? And of course, they shift blame. Adam says it's her fault. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. And so God addresses the serpent first and works his way onward from there. And as he addresses the serpent, who is the representative of our adversary, the Satan, this is what he says in verse 15. I will put, this is part of the curse, I will put enmity between you and the woman. 
The serpent is representative of Satan. The woman is representative of all mankind. And between your seed and her seed, between whatever comes after, all of your children, for the rest of eternity, there's going to be a spiritual battle going on. Now look at this next phrase, because in here you find the character of God. And all of God's judgments and all of the condemnations that he has had to make in order for sin to have its results, in order for sin to have its consequences. In all of them, there has always been a thread of mercy. There's always been a thread of love and of reconciliation. Look at what he says. Look at the prediction he makes. He shall bruise you on the head. He, meaning the seed of the woman. Somebody's going to come out of that woman that is going to crush Satan on the head. He will not be able to operate. He will be able to reflect, but you know without a head you can't do much. He will crush your head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. For all of your life, there's somebody going to be on the outside trying to, trying to slow you down, trying to distract you, and, and they're really going to be an irritant to you. Now, I want you to see this. At this covenant of, of uh, beginning, this covenant of commencement, there is something necessary for every relationship to build intimacy on whatever relationship. And that is the inkling of hope. Unless you have hope in a relationship that things can get better, the relationship goes down the tubes. Unless you have hope that somebody's going to stick with you and there's something better in the future, the relationship goes down the tubes. That is the covenant of God. You know, I don't know whether you remember the first time you met the, your wife or, or if you're not mar married, maybe the girlfriend or boyfriend you have. Do you know what we naturally do in all of our relationships? Right at the very beginning, we look for little signals of hope. Do you want to go on with this relationship? I remember the first time I met Becky. I was down in uh, the bottom of a basement. I was a pastor of the church and I was going through. And there she was in a vision of loveliness. And she still is. Brownie, brownie, brownie. Anyhow, she had this gray cape on, long, blonde hair. And she, this was in the early 70s. She was putting on peace gloves. Methodist church. Peace, little peace gloves. Peace symbols all around them. And I stopped and I introduced myself. And I said, look, I, I know you're busy. You know, I know I don't want to keep you. And she said, no, that's all right. Yeah. Huh? Catch the signal there? That's all right. See? We look for that. No, there's a little inkling of hope there. And all of us, to go on with a relationship, need to sense that little inkling of hope. You know, 95% of the teenagers in the United States believe in a God. What is even more amazing to me, though, with all of the crud that kids go through, is that 93% of them believe in a God who loves them. Isn't that amazing? Living in a world that we do? You know why? Because there is a primordial glimmer of hope. God has put that into all of our hearts, not only to know that there is a God, 
but that there is a future with God. There is that hope. So that's the first of the covenants. Let me take you to the next one. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. Something else that is very important to building intimacy into a relationship. As God builds the people for himself or as you build a relationship with someone else, is some sense of security. Look at chapter 11. I mean, uh, chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. All flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be flood to destroy the earth. What God is saying here, it's a covenant of preservation. What God is saying here is, you will have an environment stable enough that you and I can build a relationship. That is necessary for all relationships. That is necessary... You know, you know what I see people doing is destroying relationships by ultimatum. I see people doing this all the time. I tell you what, either you do this or I'm out of here. That's an ultimatum. And basically what that says is, you don't have the stability you need to build this relationship. Because if you don't walk carefully, you won't have the relationship. Ultimatums destroy any possibility for intimacy. God preserves the possibilities for intimacy by destroying the ultimatums. He is saying, you will have an earth to live on in which to come to know me and to build intimacy with me. There needs to be some sense of security. Do you know that when they were first building the Golden Gate Bridge, they got partially out into the bay, and it was such a huge structure, they had no safety devices. Twenty-three people had fallen to their death off that bridge. The construction owner could not stand it any longer, and at his own expense... He explored possibilities for a safety device. Spent $100,000. Now, this is way back then when $100,000 was some money. He spent $100,000 for a huge net to put under that bridge. People continued to fall, but now harmlessly into the net. What they discovered was that the production of the workers increased 25%. Either out of not having to be afraid all the time or out of gratitude to the owner, which, take your pick. But security in a relationship increases the productivity and makes possible the productivity of that relationship. And this is what God is saying. My second covenant is about security. I will give you a world in which you can come to me. It won't always be easy. But I will not destroy that world. Third ingredient in God's building a relationship over a period of years with civilization is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. This is part of the covenant of Abraham. You will remember in chapter 12, God goes to Abram and he says, Come out of your country and go to a country which I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And those who curse you, I will curse. And those who bless you, I will bless. And all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. Now, he says other words for that covenant. 
and again pledges to the descendants of Abraham his personal relationship. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. This is not for all the population. This is for the descendants of Abraham. He chooses Abraham. And descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now here begin the words that you see all through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's kind of a formula that represents the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see that again and again and again, either explicitly or implied. I will be your God and you will be my people. Here, God develops his covenant by choosing by having a sense of chosenness. And I would say to you that to develop any kind of intimacy, there has to be a sense that I've been chosen. That you have picked me out of other people. Again, most of the relationships I see destroyed, or at least deteriorating, are because you have lost that sense of being chosen. Anybody could fill that role. I watch husbands just take on the role of husbands, or wives take on the role of wives, or pastors take on the role of pastors. And lose that sense of calling. That sense that I am still chosen. You would pick me out from everyone else. One of my favorite stories is uh, about Herman who loved Esmeralda. This is not a true story. This is just a story. Herman loved Esmeralda. Crazy nuts. Head over heels in love with her. Her his heart. He loved her so much. And Esmeralda kind of loved Herman. Well, Esmeralda was very conservative. And one day Herman said, Esmeralda, marry me. Please, please, please marry me. Esmeralda was always very conservative financially. She was taught that by her parents. And she said, Herman, the man I marry must have $1,000 in the bank. Herman says, well, I can do it. I can do it. Just give me some time. Just give me a few months. I can do it. So Herman runs out of town. and Couldn't, find, couldn't, couldn't earn any time, but he ran, ran out of town and worked and worked and worked for months and months and months and saved up all of his money and finally came up to about $894, you know? And thought, well, you know, I've got to go back to town. I've got to see her. I miss her so bad. Uh, maybe I can earn the rest of it on the way back in there. And by the time I get to her door, I'll have $1,000. Just the opposite happened. He went into town, and on his way into town, he saw a family that he had loved and that he had known. And they were having a horrible time financially. Their kids were hungry. And Herman just, bro it just broke his heart. He started reaching into his pocket, just pulling out all the money he had, just gave him all the money he could just grab. He knew he'd blown his chance for marriage. But he was in town. And he couldn't not see her. So he went to the door and he knocked and Esmeralda came to the door and said, Oh, Herman, it's you. I have missed you so badly. And then the business side took over. You got the thousand dollars? Herman says, Well, I kind of had it and then... No. She said, Well, how much you got? He dug around Came up with $4.29. She looked at him and said, Close enough! <laughs> now that's not a good 
theological illustration. Because God doesn't lower His standards. The difference is made up by Jesus Christ. The difference is made up by Jesus Christ. But here's what it says. That there's a sense of chosenness. There's a sense of, I want you in spite of the fact that you don't have the sufficiency for me. In spite of the fact that you're broken. Oops. In spite of the fact that you come to me without all that you need. I want you. I choose you. That's what God did for Abraham. Why? We don't know. It's God's choice. It's His business. And that's what He does for us who are also called to Him. All right, so there's a sense of chosenness. Now, there's just a few more. Uh, Moses, uh, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. You will recognize this as the covenant of the law. Now, I've got to watch myself here. Saturday night, I said, you know, the law did not pass away. And afterwards, there was an ex-Adventist in the, in the, in the congregation, and he came up, came up and said, uh, let's talk. Uh, because I don't know how you, much you know about the Adventist religion, but they go by the law. They say it is still in effect, and you gotta, you know, that's why they, you know, meet on Saturday and so on and so forth. Well, I misspoke. And by the way, I love the fact that you will challenge me on stuff. Don't ever stop that. I tell you what, I had such an embarrassment a few years. The last church I was in, I read a scripture passage, Proverbs 22, 6, wrongly. I, dis, I dyslexied it. You know, I got it backwards. Train up a child in a way you, you, he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I, I thought it said, it will not depart from him. And for three years, periodically, I used that scripture and I kept saying, now it doesn't say he will not depart from it. It says it will not depart from him. Not one person told me I was wrong. Now, I don't know whether they just didn't want to tell me I was wrong or they didn't know I was wrong. I hope it was the first one. Yeah, they had to think it was the second one. But it is so important to me that if I am misstating myself, which I will do on occasion. Imagine me when I, when I was reading that. Uh, three years later, and I came across that just in my private devotional time, I was mortified to know that I had been misquoting that all those years. I, I misquoted Scripture a couple years ago here. And by the end of that service, there was a line of people <laughs> saying, Come here. We love you, but that isn't what it says, you know. I love that. And you can thank the Saturday evening congregation because they cleaned me up for you guys. <laughs> And if I'm not clean enough, by the time I get here, you better be cleaning me up for the Monday evening congregation, okay? So keep up with that stuff. But I've got to be careful because it is not the law that is the important part. It is the structure that law gives us. The law has been reformulated in the New Testament. We must be very careful not to interpret the New Testament by the Old Testament, but to interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. We can't get that order mixed up, all right? You've got to interpret the Old Testament from what the New Testament says. But God, in, in giving Moses these words, these, this, this dynamic of the law, and this covenant, making his covenant with Moses, and it says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. There's those words again. Somebody's been fooling with the air conditioner. Anyhow, you've got to sh- you've got to know that relationships require structure. Structure doesn't doesn't um, block intimacy. It enables intimacy. In every relationship, you have to have do's and don'ts. You have to have things that are expected and things that aren't expected. And without that, if you just have perfect freedom in a relationship, it'll disintegrate like that. When I first started in ministry, there was a horrible book out on the market. And it was called Open Marriage. I don't know how many of you have ever read that. The O'Neills wrote it, got a divorce not too long after they got done with it. Their marriage was so open, it became not. And so the, 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 the principle of this thing was that you could do anything in your marriage as long as you were open and you communicated with your partner about it. Well, honey, I just want to be honest with you. You know, you could go out and have an affair with somebody. But the important part was that you were open and honest about your feelings about it. Holy cow. You know how... I mean, and people were, people were eating that up, you know, being totally honest. You know, it was, the, well, it was a real touchy-feely kind of age anyhow. Everybody was just into their own feelings. But I watched marriages drop like that because they were buying that stuff. No, 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 no. God says for intimacy there must be structure. There must be some form of law, some procedure by which we go. Because without order, you have chaos. And that's exactly what your relationships will become unless there's an understanding there. So so with the law, God gave us the principle of structure for intimacy. Okay, a couple more. David, we're going to the kingdom here. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. It says in verse 3, this is God talking. I have made a covenant with my chosen. There's that word. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your, look at that word, throne to all generations. This is a covenant of the kingdom. And this is basically what it means. That not only is there a structure, but there is a place for authority and leadership of God in this world. And in order to have intimacy in a relationship, you have to have a leader. Now, I know this becomes a big shock to to couples in this day. Everybody thinks they can co-manage a relationship. That is an illusion. You have Somebody has to lead. Now, if you agree to switch off leadership, that's up to you. But there's got to be a leader and there's got to be a follower. You say, well, that'll just crush me if I'm led. I would say, no, it does just the opposite. Strong leadership makes for strong followers. Was David less strong because God was sovereign in his life? Well, he was more strong. Was Israel less strong because David was a strong leader? No, they were more strong. You see the principle? It's the principle of establishing the covenant of authority. That God is the leader. And we follow what he says. It's the principle of leadership that gives power to the followers. Does not extract it. That's not God's style of leadership. God energizes people when we're in his will. 
God gives us more power to follow Him. Now, He doesn't just make us feel good about our own power, but He certainly gives us the leadership we need to become strong. When I was in high school, the, the football coach got several of us guys on the team jobs so that we could keep in shape in the offseason. And, and I worked uh, for the city street department. We worked on a road gang shoveling rock. And boy, you shovel rock for eight hours a day for a dollar an hour, and you just feel like, you know, you can whip the world. One of the, one of the interesting parts of that job was meeting the other people who had been on those jo- jobs for years and years. They made a career out of working on the street gang. Now, you can imagine, these were not yuppies. These were people, there was a guy there that, that 67 years old, his name was Archie, kept saying, start, on on the, start out on the end of the shovel and end up on the end of the shovel. Shoot, I like it. He, he was perfect, he liked it, he did. There was another guy there, though, I think his name was Elmer, I can't remember, but he was, he was noticeably retarded. And he was 30-some years old and he lived with his parents. And poor old Elmer couldn't do anything right. I mean, he'd come in every day to work, all pumped up. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. And he would proceed to mess up everything everybody tried to do. And the line boss, who had problems with his own authority, therefore he needed somebody to yell at, would cream Elder or Elmer every day. Anyhow, there's a Freudian slip for you. <clears throat> would cream Elmer every day. One day, one day, Elmer had a horrible day. I mean, he was operating the tar thing and just kind of got hot tar all over us and we were yelling at him. We were all burning, yelling at him. And then he wrecked a very expensive machine. I mean, he was having a horrible day. And the line boss was yelling at him unmercifully. And all of us were mad at him. But I, I watched Elmer at the end of the day, and he just couldn't take any longer. I mean, his eyes just started filling up with tears. And as soon as his eyes filled up with tears, my heart broke. Oh, man, I was so regretful that I had been angry with him. And he kept saying something to himself over and over again. And I got close enough to him to hear what he was saying. He kept saying, I've got to get home. I've got to get home. I said, Elmer, what, why do you have to go home? He said, I've got to get home. I've got to get home. It's been a horrible day. I've got to get home. I said, why do you have to get home? He said, because every day when I go home, my mom and dad sit me down and they tell me what a great person I am. They tell me how important I am to them. They tell me how much they love me. They tell me how tomorrow is going to be a better day. i got to get home. That's authority. That's authority. Now again, there's a little theological because God's goal is not to tell us how great we are. But it certainly is to give us hope. And it certainly is to call us again to himself so that we can know that our chosenness is for a purpose and that we can do what he has called us to do. By establishing the kingdom that God is king, he's given, no matter how we're beat up in this world, he has given us somebody to go to. We've got to get home. Now, one last one, but this is the important one. It's the covenant. It's the new covenant in Jesus Christ. This is the consummation of all of the covenants that have gone before. Because it is the apex of intimacy. 
All of the others were required for a relationship. This is the relationship. Now, it starts out in the Old Testament with Exodus 25.8 as an example of how God begins from the very beginning to locate his presence in a specific object or a specific place. In this particular scripture, God is talking with Moses, and he says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. You hear his heart? God wants to begin to create a mentality that he himself is going to, be, going to come and be with us. And that stays all the way to Revelation 21.3 where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice saying from the throne, God shall be with them, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. And God himself shall dwell among them and wipe every tear from their eye. So their death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I love that. So you see, it begins to locate God or the presence of God in a specific place so that we can prepare to see God in a specific person. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see what God did through the years, through the, uh, the sanctuary and through the tent of meeting and through the Ark of the Covenant and through the temple and so on and so forth. He kept locating his presence in a place so that when Jesus Christ came, we could relate to him as a person. And then Jesus Christ went on physically. And guess where God resides now? It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the prophets, of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Where does God dwell now? In us, in the church. See? We who are being knitted together, God is in his church. That's intimacy. When he's no longer just out there, he's also in here, in the people that he is making for himself. Now what's our agenda? Now our agenda through the new covenant is to figure out what to do with all of the kingdom that God has for us to be stewards of. I'll tell you a story and then I'll quit. Long time ago, there was a very rich man who loved two things. He loved art. He was a great collector of expensive and wonderful art, classic art. He also loved his boy. He had a son. And he thought more of that son than all the world. 
When the boy had grown into his later teen years, he died. And the old man thought surely he was going to die too from a broken heart. He struggled from day to day to day, just trying to get through life without the boy that he loved. Finally, he did die some years later. And he put it in his will that all of his belongings were to be auctioned off. And so on the day of the auction, everyone who knew of this man's great collection of art and worldly goods came to this auction. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. The first thing on the block was a little crayon-drawn self-portrait of that little boy that he had drawn when he was just in grade school. I mean, the nose was out here and a big smile and the teeth hanging down. And, and it was just a little piece of paper. Well, there was silence. But one of the guys in the crowd had been a caretaker of that estate. He knew that boy and he loved him too. He spoke out of the silence. He said, I'll give you 75 cents for that. And he thought to himself, and I'll give whatever I have to to get it. Because that was by his hand. Well, there were no more bids. Going once, going twice, it was gone to him for 75 cents. And the auctioneer said this. The auction is over. People said, what? I drove all this way? And he read... The rest of the will, which simply stated, anyone who loves my son enough to buy his picture gets everything I own. You hear me? We love his son, don't we? Now we've got to figure out to do with what to do with everything he owns. <laughs> Pray with me. God, thank you for the ways to become intimate with you that you have built into the history of mankind and into the history of our character, a path to intimacy. We thank you for your pervasive presence. And we will turn to you to find out how to manage all you have given into our possession. In Jesus' name, amen.